Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with Professor Akhil Amar. And by here, Andy, you mean here. We're actually uh, together. Um, we, we've done some of our episodes at a distance um, uh, using the miracles of modern technology, um, Zoom and the iPhone, but, but we're actually now in the same room together um, uh, uh, at my uh, uh, country cottage in uh, beautiful Guilford, Connecticut. Yeah, and the, uh, the sun's coming up. It's the... Uh the opening of a new day, and uh, we're actually going to talk a little bit about openings today, um, openings of books, how you write your opening, and uh, the significance of it. And this is a continuation of our series on on books, which is itself a continuation of a series on uh, authority and writings and so forth. And one might wonder, uh, if you're new to the podcast, what this has to do with the Constitution. Um, and of course... It's America's Constitution, this podcast, which is not to say that the, that the Constitution is America's, but rather the podcast is. Um, and uh, you know, I think we're, we're trying to think about what you as an audience can gain from uh, Professor Amar's knowledge, but also his, his experiences. Um, you know, he, he lives in various spheres, um, you know, the sphere of the, the academic, the sphere of the author, the sphere of the public speaker, and, and now the sphere of the podcaster, although I, I don't know how meta we'll get to talk about <laughs> podcasting um, on the podcast. But anyway. Uh, are we allowed to talk about meta? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, perhaps it's trademarked at this point. We may need to pay a, uh, <laughs> a fee to uh, Mark Zuckerberg. The, the informal motto of the Yale Law School is anything you can do, I can do meta. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, so uh, you know, of course, you know, Professor Mars' career is, as as we've said, somewhat unusual in the sense that his, uh, you know, very prominent law professor's writings have gone from the from the area of articles into the into the world of books, and significant academic uh, achievement in books, um, where if you want to know his his newest and and best ideas, you have to read his books as opposed to uh, reading the latest article. That's something somewhat unusual. And uh, so, of course, in our podcast, we're able to bring you those, some of those ideas in, in somewhat digested or expounded form, depending on how we approach it. So all these things, I think, allow us to take advantage of the media of the podcast to allow you to access and benefit from, uh, from Akil's experiences. So here we are, um, back talking about the books. And last time we closed with a, a little bit on Joseph's story, um, and you know we had gone through the process of writing the book. Now we're going to dissect the book itself a little bit. Its physical qualities, it's how you market it, you know, and so forth. But even uh, going back a bit, the physical quality of the book begins with the cover and then with the, the opening of the book in some ways. It begins in so many different ways. Yes, there's the jacket, and then um, things that you don't even think about. Um, is the dedication page part an important part of the book or not? And the, the table of contents, how is it uh, laid out? Um, is there a preface or a prologue or a foreword or an introduction? And then chapter one. All, each of these can be seen as a, as a kind of opening parenthesis of a certain sort. 
um, for the book. Let me actually start with chapter one, because, um, uh, and then I'll maybe back up and talk about what in this book um, is uh, described as a preface. In some books, um, there's a thing called an, um, an, an introduction, and some people distinguish between prefaces and introductions. Um, but let me talk about um, chapter one, which I like to think of as act one, scene one. Uh, for reasons that I'll explain. Uh, so uh, in our last discussion, I, I talked about taking a big project, like a book project, and subdividing it, breaking it down into distinct chapters, breaking down chapters into distinct subchapter sh- subchapters. Okay, so let's imagine now you've done your first draft. You've actually sort of finished all the little term papers that you've stitched together. Um, uh, can you just send it into the... Um, book publisher? Okay, done. Well, not quite, because you want to do w- at least one run-through um, to make sure um, that these parts fit together, knit together in the right way. And, and among the most important things you want to do uh, is make sure that um, now that the book is entirely written, you've opened in the right way and that you're closing in the right way. When you sit there at the keyboard and you begin the book, it's, it's just um, a fantasy. It's an idea, a concept. It's, uh, so to speak, all in your head. And, and may, maybe it's not all in your head. It wasn't entirely all in my head when I hit that first keystroke um, because um, I was going to be covering... I initially thought I was actually going to be coming 240 years in one volume. The book was originally going to be called 12 Score, 12 Score Years, America's Constitutional Conversation um, from 1760 to 2001 volume. Well, um, it quickly became clear to me after a a month or two that that wasn't going to work so well because I had too much material and I was going through it in such detail that I wasn't going to be able to cover 240 years years in in a single volume okay so kind of like doing all nine supreme court justices in one podcast episode um the story of this podcast you know it was going to be one episode on uh, uh, books and now it's going to we may not even finish the books actually i'm not sure we're going to get to marketing in the book tour today but um uh, yeah because um so you have an idea at the beginning but then when you start to do it it takes on a life of its own like a conversation you know moves here and there um so um, so when you hit that first keystroke, you have an idea of what you think the book is going to be, um, but it may not be exactly what the book ends up becoming. Here's another thing um, uh, that, that happened. Um, I, I knew in broad outline the sorts of things I want to cover, but as I'm writing each chapter, I'm doing additional reading and research, um, and the book is taking on a life of its own. It's beginning to write itself in in various ways. And I knew that from the beginning. Oh, I'm going to need to to do more research when I get to 1776 because i got to um, remind myself of um, all the things that I know about the Declaration of Independence. Oh, I'm going to need to um, revisit all the state constitutions so when I get to that part of the story, um, uh, I'm going to um, have to do um, ad- additional rereading and, and research. Okay, so you started... Um, uh, 
that first term paper and with a set of keystrokes. But now once you've got the whole thing, the first draft, the rough draft, before you've sent it off to the editor, you've only shown your your best buddy, Andy Lipka, um, uh, as you've been going through it, the the, the different part. You want to go back and look at that act one, scene one, to make sure that it's actually the right way to start the story. Now that you have pretty much the um, um, the rough out outline, the contours of the story, um, and um, maybe you tweak it a bit um, so that uh, the deep themes of the entire project are um, uh, brought to the surface, um, are foreshadowed um, at the very beginning. Um, and, and that's actually the sign of a, of a good book to, to have some of those. Um, you know, you can't get every theme in, but at least some important themes identified at the very beginning. I'm going to do a short reading from this book, and then I'm going to connect it to some of my other favorite books and, and how they begin um, and, and, and what we can tell from their beginning. So again, I'm skipping over the jacket and the uh, title page and the copyright page and the dedication page and the table of contents and even the preface, um, which is in my book is subtitled The First Four Score. You see, so I'm already, if you're listening carefully think, oh, that's an allusion to Lincoln, as in four score and seven. Um, so um, I'm going to skip over the, the preface, which was written um, afterward. It wasn't written at the beginning, it was written afterward. So here's how chapter one begins. And, I, and I, by the way, I have to give it a title, typically. You know, typically chapters have titles, and this one is Seeds. And so if you, the reader thinks about it, oh, Seeds, like as in Origins beginning and seeds is in quotes because it's actually borrowed from um, language that the reader will come to uh, know uh, came uh, uh, originates with John Adams so here's how I begin I'm going to read um, first page of the book the news reached America on a steed that had no legs but promised swiftness the merchant ship racehorse landed in Boston on Saturday, December 27, 1760, after 40 days on the choppy ocean that both connected and divided Old England and New England. The trader bore incontrovertible tidings from early November British newspapers, copies of which Captain Samuel Partridge immediately distributed to Boston print shops for partial republication. As passengers and crew came ashore, word also spread from mouth to mouth. The old king was dead, and the young king now sat on the throne. The aged George II had passed away two months earlier, on October 25th to be precise. Officials across Great Britain promptly proclaimed the dead monarch's 22-year-old grandson, King George III, in what seemed to the London papers a smooth transfer of power. The transition was not seamless in colonial Massachusetts in the winter of 1760-61. to Hairline cracks emerged that would later widen into a gulf between America and Britain as vast as the Atlantic itself. Some of the same Boston publishers, who enjoyed a good working relationship with Samuel Partridge, would have harsh things to say about another captain who came to town less than a decade later, Thomas Preston. Almost exactly 13 years after Partridge's crew dropped anchor, other men would drop other things into Boston Harbor. Britain would respond by sending many more vessels, 
warships, not traders, into Boston and other American ports. In 1775, war would break out within earshot of the taverns and alehouses where loyal British Americans first toasted young King George III. Only a decade and a half into the reign of a ruler whose accession they hailed when they heard the news, provincials in Massachusetts and 12 other colonies would cut all ties to this man and to the British Empire that he embodied. Okay, and then actually there's a kind of a double break and I begin my first subsection, which is entitled Proclamation, which I'm going to talk about in just a, a bit. So um, you might think, okay, fine. What, you know, nothing um, particularly remarkable there. Um, but actually, um, I'm doing lots of things in, in that beginning. I'm telling you about ships crossing the Atlantic. I'm telling you about geography and, 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 and distance and, and time. How long does it take for the ship to cross the Atlantic? I'm making, um, I'm telling you about, quote, um, old England and new England. Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, um, uh, talking about word spreading from mouth to mouth, about London newspapers, about how they're actually going to be reprinted in American print shops. I'm talking about the dissemination of information. It begins, the news reached America um, uh, on a steed that had no legs but promised swiftness. So that was just a little bit of, of cute writing because the ship is called the racehorse. And so it's a, it's a steed, but it's... Yeah. And, and this book is going to be about water versus land um, and horses versus ships and travel time, um, but also the dissemination of news but it's also, um, I'm signaling here, oh, um, at the beginning, everything seems to be fine, um, but um, actually, it's going to unravel at a certain point. So I'm, 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 uh, gonna, I'm anticipating the, the next few years. And, and I'm uh, writing for, um, obviously, a certain kind of knowledgeable audience when I say things like the following. I'm, I'm, I'm setting the scene uh, historically taverns and alehouses, you know, just so you, you have a little bit, uh, you begin to, to, to think, ah, this is um, Boston in the colonial period, um, 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 and, you know, uh, how they're, they're toasting their, their new leader. You can almost imagine they're, you know, raising their um, uh, 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 pints of ale. Um, but I'm also um, uh, just mentioning, oh, uh, warships versus traders. Um, this is a theme of Linda Colley's um, recent book about how the same kinds of ships that can bring troops can also bring newspapers and news and information and, and how um, uh, newspapers um, and um, troops are all connected to American constitutionalism. This is a, a, a book that she's recently published and I'm identifying the very same themes in my book. Our books come out roughly contemporaneously. She's a, a history professor at Princeton. Um, but you see, I'm presupposing... Um, 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 a knowledgeable audience when I say um, almost exactly 13 years after Partridge's crew dropped anchor, other men would drop other things into Boston's, into Boston Harbor. So, you know, I'm presupposing an audience that, you know, is somewhat familiar with the Boston Tea Party because they're going to get that illusion. And I think the, um, the first sentence and 
You know, in our discussions, you've you've emphasized the importance of beginnings and openings in so many uh, works and media, not just books, but also movies, TV shows, yes, you know, and so forth. Um, I think that this can be uh, uh, this perhaps is even unwitting on your part, but you know, you're it's it's fairly concrete, right? The news reached America, um, and you're referring to specific news, but it can also be the news. Generically, the news, mm-hmm. the newspapers, yes, the idea of news, yes, reached America, yes, and um, on a steed that had no legs but promised swiftness. Well, that's the boat, but it's also newspapers in general, which is its own steed that has no legs and serves to disseminate mm. information more quickly Hadn't and so that. forth. So yeah. yes. this is a you know if you want to be meta, I mean that's a phenomenon that the book deals with and if you speak if you think of the news you know more generically here then the the sentence takes on a different meaning but a meaning that is absolutely a, a theme of your book um and um we haven't even really talked about um the title but of course a reader will uh, typically have seen the the, the the title before she gets to chapter one the words that made us America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. That's the title and the subtitle. So this is apparently a book about words and about a conversation. And now I'm connecting it to something very specific that's going to be a huge theme of my book, which is newspapers. Now, speaking of beginnings, um, we talked about um, a book that I wrote back in 2005, which is the thing that's closest to this one, America's Constitution a Biography. And um, uh, let me actually um, tell you just um, a, 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 a bit about how that book begins. So in that book, I have also a, a little um, intro, that, which I call a preface, um, as opposed to an introduction. Again, there's a technical difference between a, t- a preface, believe it or not, in, in, in book lingo. Some people do distinguish between prefaces. Um, and, what about and, forwards? And, and forwards are typically done by someone other than the author. You get some famous person to say a, f- a few words about them. They're like a, um, um, a blurb on steroids or something. Um, and they're in different part blurbs on the back of the book, typically, or at the very um, um, uh, beginning near the title page, um, uh, sometimes testimonials. Um, but a foreword is typically you know, one to five pages or so written by a notable about the book. So here's the preface to... Um, America's Constitution and Biography, um, I end by saying, our story begins, where else? At the beginning. Um, and this is, I see, outside the story. So a, a preface can be sort of outside the main narrative. Um, so I'm talking directly to the, the, the reader about the, the book rather than being in the book itself. Okay. Um, um, so our story begins, where else? At the beginning. So this is a discussion at the beginning about beginnings, you see. With the Constitution's opening sentence, conventionally known as the preamble. This sentence bids us to ponder basic questions about our Constitution and our country. How democratic was the Constitution of 1787? Did it bind Americans into an indivisible nation? If so, why? So I'm actually saying I'm going to start at the beginning somehow. And then chapter one, its title is In the Beginning. Um, and here's how I um, begin with a reference to beginnings. And this is again a chat. And in the beginning, of course, this is an allusion to Genesis and the Gospel according to St. John, and it's biblical. But now I'm going to begin, um, um, this is um, the first sentence of uh, chapter one, 
it started with a bang. So it started as and began. And now that's an allusion. She's to the big bang. So I'm be- I'm, I begin with allusions to um, uh, uh, theology um, um, and to science. It started with a bang. Okay. And, um, uh, and what am I talking about in the beginning? I'm talking about um, the beginning of the text of the Constitution. How does the Constitution textually begin? What, what did I say in that preface? Our story begins, or else, at the beginning. So what, what do you mean at the beginning? You know, what beginning? And my book, um, America's Constitution, is a textual book, so it's going to actually walk you through the text. So it begins with the beginning of the text, which is a key sentence, we the people. It, there's a lot going on there, um, and people skate over it, and I devote 50 pages, my first chapter, to, uh, chapter to, to that beginning of the text, because it's so important. It's we the people ordaining and establishing the Constitution, which changes the world. We put the thing to a vote. Um, up and down the continent. And and a constitution isn't just some written piece of paper that, that calls itself a constitution or that calls itself law. Well, it c- can be, I suppose, but but that's not the American constitution. The American constitution begins with a certain patch of text that's describing what I claim is the most epic deed in the history of the world to that point, uh, politically, which is an entire continent actually ordaining a constitution, which is how the next paragraph of, 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 of chapter one um, of... Uh, America's Constitution in the beginning says, oh, I, I, so, so I just have an opening paragraph and then a double break and a subsection heading, which is entitled, quote, quote, we dot, 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 do, end quote. With simple words placed in the document's most prominent location. Where's the most prominent location? The beginning. And I'm saying this at the beginning of my own book. This is actually a, a, an important page, reader. Um, um, if the prom- most prominent location of the Constitution is its beginning, this is important, this beginning. With pr- simple words placed in the document's most prominent location, the preamble laid the foundation for all that followed. We the pe- uh, Quote, we the people of the United States to ordain and establish this Constitution. And all that followed is double. It's all that followed in the text, and it's also all that followed chronologically, because that first sentence is actually describing the ordainment, and the preamble is laying the foundation for all the events that will follow the act of, of, of Constitution, the we doing. Here's how I explain it. These words did more than promise popular self-government. They also embodied and enacted it. Like the phrases, I do in an exchange of wedding vows, and I accept in a contract, the preamble's words actually performed the very thing they described. Thus the founder's constitution, in quotes, was not merely a text but a deed, a constituting. We the people do ordain. In the late 1780s, this was the most democratic deed the world had ever seen. Okay, so... I'm only two paragraphs into the thing, and I'm saying I'm telling you about the most democratic deed the world had ever seen. Um, And it's there, if you read with care, at the beginning, in the beginning of the Constitution's text itself, because it also begins in an important and dramatic way. It actually was well-written and reflecting on its own themes, um, and the biggest theme of all is popular sovereignty, and it's there in that famous opening, and, and it's not just that the preamble um, is impressive, it begins with that important collective noun, we the people, okay, and then it goes on to say, here are some reasons why, for various reasons, it's a long sentence, then the, the verb comes at the end, do ordain and establish, okay, and it's this act, like I do, 
you know, I accept, um, you know, yes, I do promise to love, honor, and obey. I do take thee as my lawfully wedded spouse. Um, I um, do accept this contract or something. So the Constitution, I say, is actually really well-structured, and its beginning is important. And I'm taking beginnings important, uh, uh, taking them seriously in this book, America's Constitution, and the first chapter is called In the Beginning, um, and the first sentence is about beginnings. It started with a bang, um, and it's an allusion to the Big Bang, because my claim is that amazing beginning generates a momentum, and uh, um, just as the, as the Big Bang um, did, that, that explains, um, it's going to explain in America, that, that, that democratic momentum, why over time the Constitution will become more democratic. The amendments will actually elaborate on this um, idea of popular sovereignty and, and more people will be allowed to vote um, in, in the subsequent amendments after the Civil, civil War and um, in, in the 20th century women's suffrage, 18-year-old vote. And it also is going to radiate um, 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 uh, geographically and eventually change the world. Uh, the world begins, um, my story begins when there are very few democracies on the planet. And I say that in the first page of the book, um, uh, and, um, and today half the world is democratic on the American constitutional model. These are themes that are um, p- powerful. In my work, I've mentioned Linda Colley um, a, a, a few, a few um, a- already. She's a, a Princeton professor. Um, maybe we should have her on the podcast at, at some point, but um, her book do- um, doesn't see the American Constitution as um, uh, this preeminent um, of uh, deed and text and, and um, this preeminent event in the history of the world, this world-changing thing. She doesn't present it as the Big Bang. That's what I do because I'm paying attention not just to the words, but the events they're describing. We do ordain and establish. The, the stunning thing I'm saying is uh, our Constitution begins not just with words, but with an event an ordainment, an establishment, which is an entire year's worth of conversation in which the people agree that they're going to ratify the Constitution. My story, put differently, does not begin um, in May of 1787 with uh, the Philadelphia Convention. That's all backstory for me. In fact, I've skipped over one thing. I I, I actually um, uh, told you about um, page five of um, uh, my America's Constitution and Biography book, which is where my text really begins. But actually, um, two pages before, there's a picture with a caption. And the picture is from a newspaper. You see, so these, these books are connected, okay? It's a picture of the, a Philadelphia newspaper, uh, the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser, Wednesday, September 19th. 1787, and here's the caption. Because maybe you could say, oh, the book doesn't really begin with the text of chapter one, but with the picture um, that, that precedes it. Here's what I say. The Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser, parenthesis, September 19, 1787, close parenthesis. When, after a summer of closed meetings at Philadelphia, America's leading statesmen went public with their proposed constitution on September 17, 1787, newspapers rushed to print the proposal in its entirety. In several printings, the dramatic words of the preamble appeared in particularly large type. So again, you see the newspaper idea. 
You see how important beginnings are because the newspaper is actually choosing to highlight um, the beginning of the Constitution in large type. We'll put up a picture of this on our um, uh, website. Um, but when am I beginning my story? In September of 1787. Um, why? I'm telling you, if you read with care, because what happened before was closed. It was secret. For me, the important, the Constitution, my my story, the story that I want to tell, begins when the thing goes public in a publication published by a publisher. And it's the same root word as Republican government, which in Latin is the same root word as people, publicus. uh, Publius, pu- uh, it's, it's all about the thing going public. And so almost every other book about the Constitution begins actually in May 1787 um, with the Philadelphia Convention. For me, I'm going to have to tell you about all that, um, and this is connected to narrative, but that's going to be backstory. My story begins with the preamble textually, and then, therefore, chronologically, with the ordainment and establishment of the Constitution, which begins when it goes public in mid-September 1787, which is why Constitution Day every year, which we talked about in a previous episode, is September, and, and Robert Byrd, um, um, and it's why, um, which is September 17th, which is why I always go on the road for book tours and things like that in mid-September, because my story is a ratification story, a popular sovereignty story, a story about a whole continent ordaining and establishing and talking about a constitution in newspapers and elsewhere, and not actually a story of 55 people meeting in a closed room, 39 of whom eventually have their names signed to think thing. That's not what changes the world quite. You know, elites huddling in, in, in closed rooms, we've seen that throughout history, um, you know, everywhere. That's not my drama. My drama is... My story begins two ways, textually with the preamble, chronologically with the ratification, and those two threads come together in the words of the preamble which describe the very deed. We, the people, do ordain and establish this constitution, and everything that's happened before, the Philadelphia Convention, the state constitution, the Articles of Confederation, I'm working backwards here, um, the state constitutions, the Declaration of Independence, the um, and the American uh, Revolution, all that stuff, um, um, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, um, 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 Magna Carta, all, all that stuff is backstory because the world ne- never really begins um, unless you're a biblical literalist, like you know, in an instant. Um, there was always the day before and the day before that and the day before that, so it's always a challenge for any author, especially an historical author, figure out how am I going to start my story? Where is my act one, scene one? And I'm eventually going to have to fill in for the reader what's happened before, but that's going to be by way of flashback and backstory rather than my story going forward. A number of comments on on all that. First of all, um, yes, uh, and in terms of what you're saying about chapter one there, and then again, the title, In the Beginning. So now you're saying here is the beginning. And that matters because you might say, well, the, the reader knows it's the beginning. I, they just started reading. Of course, it's the beginning. <laughs> you know, but in fact, we know that many books don't begin in the beginning. They, you know, the, so the Iliad and the Odyssey, they begin you know, in the middle. Um, 
and uh, one of my favorite books, you know, The Power Broker, which we've discussed by Robert Caro, um, does not begin in the beginning. It, it actually begins in two places. It begins before the beginning, and then it begins in the middle. Um, so in his forward, here his introduction, he has, um, you know, two, two vignettes, one of which occurs while Robert Moses is in college, and another one which occurs while he's well-established in power. Um, so in terms of your identifying the release of the Constitution, the beginning of the ratification uh, debates and so forth, that is the beginning. And now you're saying, you know, in a variety of ways. And the Constitution itself, um, the preamble makes a point, as you said, uh, in its wording, but also it, in its physical appearance. Um, and of course, some of this is cho are choices made by publishers. Um, but most of us, when we think of the preamble, we think of we the people mm -hmm. as being mu in much larger print than the rest of the, of the preamble. And that, you know... Um, so, so doubly, um, we the people is bigger than the rest of the preamble, and the preamble in these early newspapers, and, and that's true in actually the Philadelphia Packet, um, the... Um, uh, the Philadelphia Packet, which we'll put... Um, we have the W. The, uh, the W is, is bigger than everything else, but, but the preamble itself is in much, much bigger font than um, the rest of the Constitution, which is reprinted be below it. But when you go to the National Constitution Center, um, on the front, and we maybe we'll put up a picture of it, which I helped um, found way back when, along with Gordon Wood um, and others, um, on the facade... Um, Andy and you and I are actually going to be there um, uh, um, soon enough um, in, in Philadelphia. I'm giving a lecture at the Thomas Jefferson University on uh, Wednesday, November 3rd. Um, we're recording this on uh, Sunday, October 31st. It's Halloween. Um, uh, boo. Uh, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, on the facade of the National Constitution Center, there are the words of the preamble, but we the people, I think, are particularly um, uh, prominent um, in that depiction. And of course, this goes to questions of physical appearance of the document um, and also physical appearance of your book. Like, yeah. For example, you mentioned the double break. Right. Um, and We're and going to talk about even how the, 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 the cover and how it, the words are laid out on it, but, be, but I, I don't want to lose your, your insight that sometimes you can begin a story in the middle. So you, you um, uh, mentioned the, the, the Iliad. Where, where does the Iliad begin? So first of all, it begins in the after the Trojan War has gone on for nine years. Oh, right. So it doesn't begin um, when Agamemnon is trying to get to the Trojan War. That happens later. Right. You, they, they, that's they back, tell the backstory back of story. and so forth. Right. And and scrolls, as I mentioned before, you know, before we have the the um, uh, paginated book, kind of begin in the middle, and then you sort of open up the scrolls from, you know, um, on the right side and on the left side, right? So, so a scroll kind of begins in, in, in the middle in a certain way. Um, and so maybe uh, the, the technology of, of, of writing influences storytelling, um, that narrative. Um, um, offline, when we were um, um, preparing for this podcast, um, you mentioned a movie that, begins kind of at the end and then um, flashes back, um, saving Private Ryan. Um, so that begins with the Matt Damon character um, uh, going to uh, the cemetery. Correct. Right? And then um, uh, um, beginning to remember, and actually I think the, uh, the back story um, uh, is uh, um, um, 
uh, done by, I think, um, zeroing in on his eye. Um, he has, you know, piercing blue eyes or something. And then you see, you know, the, the young Matt Damon character, um, the young Private Ryan. Um, I think that's the same technique in um, uh, Titanic, where you have the, the, the Kate Winslet character, the survivor of the Titanic as an old woman, and, um, and then they, I think, again, they kind of zero in on her and then um, start the story with, with uh, Kate Winslet as a young woman. Um, and one of my favorite beginnings of movies, it begins before the beginning, um, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, with, uh, and so there, 2001 is a very interesting movie because of the very, very few words in the movie. And the first word, spoken word doesn't occur for about 25 minutes, for example. Um, and, but there, is, there are words that are on the screen, the dawn of man. Mm-hmm. And then you see apes mm-hmm. you know, for a long time. And then the ape eventually um, is given the gift of knowledge of a tool. Which becomes a weapon. Correct. Yes. And so quickly they move from tool to, to weapon and warfare. And then he, he in, in victory, having defeated the rival apes for the, I guess it's the water source, or the food source, um, he throws the bone up in the air, and as it falls, as gravity pulls it down, uh, we shift to a zero-gravity environment, and we'll see the, uh, the space station uh, oh. orbiting, seeming to fall around the Earth. And speaking of beginnings, okay, that um, uh, beginning is also, it announces itself in epic fashion, um, a w- and a book can't quite do this, maybe an audio book could, um, with utterly memorable music, you know, Thus Spake Zarathustra, um, which is, you know, a, a minute piece of music or something that's just utterly unforgettable. Um, cause, but that movie is announcing itself, you see, in a certain way, you know, very, it's a, it's a movie that takes itself seriously and is sharing with you its pretension. I began in, in an utterly pretentious way when I <laughs> title my first chapter, in the beginning, this author thinks a lot of himself, he does, um, and he thinks a lot of his subject, the Constitution, he does, because it's an audacious um, opening chapter title, In the Beginning. Now, let me back up just um, a, a moment, because... Um, you want to back up from the beginning? Yes, because I have to go to the preface, because I, I, sh- I said chapter one, and I gave you the text, and then I actually said, well, I'm backing up a little bit, and now look at the... Um, even before my text begins, there's actually a picture of a newspaper and a caption. So maybe chapter one begins with the picture and the caption, which just says September 17th or September 19th, 1787. So, but now let me back up from that because backing up from the beginning is the preface. So before you do that, I just want to uh, invite our audience to join in. Um, I've noticed that uh, there have been more and more postings on the website akilomar.com where we give you the opportunity to put comments and this is great and we're probably going to take an episode where we deal with a bunch of these comments and questions yes Um, so here we're going through some interesting openings some of our favorite movie openings and so forth if you have notable or illustrative openings that you want to bring to the audience's attention post them on the website and we'll we'll take a look and uh, be part of our recap excellent Um, so yes you know, you say, well, how can you back up from the beginning? Okay, 
because before chapter one was this two-page preface. And from a different point of view, you know, so does the book begin with the preface or with the action? Um, um, later, I'm going to um, read to you um, Romeo and Juliet. There's a little um, um, prologue. It's in verse. It's where the, the theatrical troupe is breaking the fourth wall. They're directly addressing the audience, saying, you know, our story begins, our scene begins, and then you have the main action. It's not how Hamlet begins. That's not how Macbeth begins. Um, um, uh, so, um, but I have a preface uh, that is before in the beginning, and here's how I begin the preface. Um, and it's, again, very pretentious in a certain way. I'm pompous. I'm announcing myself not so differently than Kubrick in 2001. America's constitution beckons a new world acropolis open to all. Ordained in the name of the American people, repeatedly amended by them and for them, the document also addresses itself to them. It does its work in strikingly clean prose, as law goes, and with notable brevity. Its full text, including amendments, runs less than 8,000 words, a half-hour's read for the earnest citizen. The document's style thus invites us to explore its substance, to visit and regularly revisit America's legal city on a hill. Okay, so what's going on with that? First of all, it begins in very high rhetorical fashion, a kind of soaring fashion. America's constitution beckons. Beckons is a, you know, a kind of highfalutin word. Um, America's constitution beckons. A new world acropolis open to all. Now again, there's a kind of um, a self-referentiality there because what are my first two words? America's constitution in, in, the, in my preface. Well, what's the title of the book? America's Constitution. See, so I'm describing both the book um, and the subject of the book um, when I begin America's Constitution. And then, um, and, and you, it's, I'm, I'm getting in with real economy. That whole first sentence is quite short, just like it started with a bang is quite short in chapter one. But America's Constitution beckons. That's three words, you know, um, um, subject and verb. Okay, dash, a new world acropolis opened all. So that's a short a sentence kind of um, uh, high rhetoric. Now... Well, but don't, don't dismiss the Acropolis exactly. illusion. Not, not only is it a, you know, classical in a sense, um, but also the Acropolis is the highest point. It doesn't, it's not just that it's notable. Like, like for example, you, know, you could have a, the Pentagon. The Pentagon is a big building, but it's, but it's, on, it's on the ground level. It doesn't rise you know, very high. So, um, so, so I'm going to read that, that paragraph again because it's just, okay, um, what we're talking about now is after you've done your first draft, you know, have you actually, and you know what your project actually is in a way that you didn't when you first had the keystroke. You had an idea, but you didn't have uh, um, an achievement yet. Once you've got your first draft, going back and making sure that you actually start in just you know, the best way possible. So you're absolutely right, Andy. We haven't rehearsed this part of, of our conversation, but um, and you've been to Greece recently, and I've never been to Greece. Uh, you've been to Greece as part of Ever Scholar, and um, um, and you're I interested in Ever Scholar in part because of your interest in classics and the Yale Directed Studies program and the like. Okay, America's Constitution beckons a new world acropolis open to all. Okay, now I'm gonna. That's the first sentence. Here's the last sentence of the first paragraph. And remember, I said before, last sentences of paragraphs are sometimes every bit as important as first sentences of paragraphs. 
Okay. And this is a short paragraph. America's constitution beckons a new world of corruptness opened all. First sentence, last sentence. The document's style thus invites us to explore its substance, to visit and regularly revisit America's legal city on a hill. Now, now that's a very famous allusion. That's to John Winthrop and America as a city on a hill. It's to New England, actually. And my um, America and my words that made this book is going to begin in New England. Oh, you know, the same part of the world as, as John Winthrop. But, but w- what is an Acropolis? It's a high city. It's a city on a hill. I'm in this first paragraph connecting the Athenian democracy idea to the American democracy idea. I, I've put a lot of thought into this first paragraph. If a reader, you know, is, is, is reading with care, they'll say, oh, wow, he's, um, he's connecting... Acropolis with a legal city, with a city on a hill. And it's a legal city, too. It's a high, high law, um, high polis. I see. Um, um, what am I doing in between? Oh, in between, here's the sentences. Ordained in the name of the American people, repeatedly amended, and, and that's going to be an allusion to the preamble, repeatedly amended by them and for them. Okay, so I'm going to talk about, you know, how the, the Big Bang and, and how actually democracy keeps expanding um, over time and space. The document also addresses itself to them. Now, that's an illusion you see. Um, the name of the American people repeatedly amended by them, the American people, and for them, the American people. The document addresses itself to them, the American people. So that's an obvious allusion to Lincoln. Of the people, by the people, for the people, and I'm and I'm uh, you know um, and I'm and adding to it to the people address. So I you know of by and for, but also to it's written you know so that they'll read it. It's a, it addresses itself to them. Now, what's Lincoln? What am I alluding to? Alluding to the Gettysburg Address, which itself actually, in fact, builds on Pericles's funeral oration, which Gary Wills talks about in his book Lincoln at Gettysburg. In fact, and um, uh, so so I begin with an allusion to ancient, you know, the glory that was um, ancient um, Athens, then bring in Lincoln, and then by the end, I've got John Winthrop and the city on a hill. Um, and in between, I have a slightly, you know, a lighter thing with a little bit of, you know, of, a, of a kind of a joke of sorts. Um, well, also, I mean, uh, the, the reference to Winthrop, you know, city on a hill, you know, that was an aspiration. Yes. It was, you know, it was, it, Winthrop uh, was almost evangelical. Yes. You know, the idea was to lead a, an ideal community. And here, and, and of course, the Acropolis is the temple of Athena. So that's, it's, it's you know, you're, it, it's divine. Oh, well, no. hold on. I'm not sure. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Is the entire Acropolis a temple? To no, Athena? the Parthenon. Okay, so, I'm, yeah. I, so hold that thought. Okay, I yeah. promise I'm going to come back to mm-hmm. it, just that. Okay. Um, so... Um, so in between, you know, so I, I begin with the Acropolis, and I move to Lincoln, in allusion to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Just like, you know, um, chapter one is going to begin in the beginning, the title, with allusions to Genesis and the Gospel of, according to St. John, um, and then the Big Bang. Okay, but what else, how else is this first paragraph of the preface? It, that is the Constitution, does its work in strikingly clean prose, parenthesis, as law goes, close parenthesis. So I'm sort of joking a little bit that we lawyers can be, you know, tedious and um, uh, and with notable brevity. 
Its full text, including amendments, runs less than 8,000 words, a half hour's read for the earnest citizen. I'm, so I'm saying, like, read the Constitution. It's written so that you can read it. That's why it was able to appear in its entirety in newspapers at the beginning. It was written to be short, which is a big theme of the new book, that the, the Constitution, because it's actually written to be published um, in publications, in newspapers. Um, and newspapers, you see, are doing this before there's even a First Amendment around, you see. They're part of the very process by which we ordain the Constitution. And one of the things that people are going to say is, oh, you forgot freedom of the press. You should actually textually specify it. So the amendments um, come along very quickly thereafter. The amendments grow out of the ordainment process, the we, the people, do ordain and establish. The Constitution is crowdsourced. Um, and then I say, the document style, which is short, thus invites us to explore its substance, to visit and regularly revisit America's legal city on a hill. That's the first paragraph. And then I, next paragraph says, most citizens have declined the invitation. Many could probably recite at length from some favorite poem, song, speech, or scripture, yet few could quote by heart even a single paragraph of the supreme law of our land, one of the most important texts in world history. Um, and I'm giving our Constitution pride of place over other constitutions around the world, um, um, in contrast to some other scholars that, like Linda Colley, for example, who doesn't actually see the distinctness of the American Constitution because she doesn't emphasize, as I do, that it came before the people. And her narrative is all about, you know, a few people in Philadelphia, um, you know. And, and then she tells the story. And, it, and if that's your story, yes, it's not so different than all sorts of th places um, and, 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 and people around the world in, 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 in many times meeting in the closed room um, elites and, and writing some words on paper. Right. So then, it, you know, in such a document might more appropriately begin, you know, you know, me, the king, or we, the, the few. The, the nobles. You know, Magna right. Carta is just a group of actually noblemen meeting on a battlefield. You know, I say, you know, one group of military thugs, you know, parling with another military thug. And it's not even in the, the vernacular language. It's in Latin, Magna Carta is, and ordinary people can't understand it. It didn't come. Um, so, so that's not actually where the world begins. The, the Big Bang of the world is not Magna Carta or Petition of Right. Um, or the Glorious Revolution, because those weren't voted on by an entire continent. That, that's my act one, scene one. We the people actually ordaining the thing, beginning in September of 1787. So, so I thought a lot in America's Constitution, the biography, about what the most dramatic way to start is. And it turns out it's um, happily with the beginning of the text, which actually... Um, is very prominent in the text um, and is actually describing an important concept, popular sovereignty, and an important deed, event, the ordainment and establishment itself, not the drafting. You know, it's not we, the delegates, do, you know, hereby draft um, a proposal. It's we, the people, do hereby, the word hereby doesn't appear there, but I'm interpolating it, ordain and establish this thing for ourselves and our posterity oh, that's an epic deed. That's the Big Bang. Um, okay, so, so I thought a lot about beginnings, you see, in, in that book. But you, you mentioned one other word, which is, you said, oh, the Parthenon. Okay, so I want you, now you to, I'm going to actually go to a, my prequel book. Okay, because I'm, I'm working backwards again in my own book. So I'm working from words that made us to America's Constitution. But before that, my first big trade book was called the Bill of Rights, Creation, Reconstruction, and I want to read you how it begins. So Andy, 
you've got me just right here. This is how the Bill of Rights book begins. And it's not chapter one, it's the introduction. It's not called a preface now, it's called an introduction, which is technically a little bit different. It's the first sentence of the introduction. The Bill of Rights stands as the high temple of our constitutional order, America's Parthenon, and yet we lack a clear view of it. Okay? Um, so, um, and then here it go, goes on. Instead of being studied holistically, the bill has been broken up into discrete blocks of text, with each segment examined in isolation. In a typical law school curriculum, for example, the first, ninth, and tenth amendments are integrated into an introductory survey course on constitutional law. The sixth, eighth, and much of the fifth are taught in criminal procedure. The seventh is covered in civil procedure. The Fifth Amendment takings clause is featured in property. The Fourth Amendment becomes a course unto itself or is perhaps pushed into criminal procedure or evidence because the judicially created exclusionary rule, and the second or third are ignored. Now, the second isn't ignored today, but when I wrote this in 1998, it was. So I'm actually telling you, the Bill of Rights is actually one thing. It's a unit, but we've actually broken it up. This is my holism. I'm interested in panorama. And so I'm telling you from the beginning, here's the most important thing about this book. It's, it's about all of the, 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 the rights and the Bill of Rights. It's about the whole thing and not this part or that part. So I'm, I'm saying in the first chapter, this is the most important thing about this book. It's, it's holistic. Um, but how do I begin? With an allusion to the Parthenon. The Bill of Rights stands as the high temple of our constitutional order, America's Parthenon, yet we lack a clear view of it. Now, I just thought, that, you know, that had a nice sort of feel to it, but as I began to think about my work later on, well, if the Bill of Rights is the Parthenon, you know, and I'm connecting American democracy to Athenian democracy, you see, because I'm a student of Don Kagan, and, and, and remember, um, I'm publishing eventually my books um, using Don Kagan's um, own literary agents, writers' representatives, so I'm, I'm thinking, ah, I can learn a lot from Kagan. So if the Bill of Rights is the Parthenon, what would that make the Constitution? It would be the Acropolis. See, the Bill of Rights is the high temple of liberty um, in a, a broader complex. The Parthenon is one part of the high city, the Acropolis. So the beginning of um, my America's Constitution book is actually also not just an allusion to Greece and to Lincoln and to Winthrop in the American tradition, it's actually also a subtle allusion to my own previous book, my prequel, The Hobbit, to, you know, um, before The Lord of the Rings, um, in which I described the Bill of Rights as the Parthenon. So clearly you put a lot of emphasis on the opening. Um, and, you know, last time we talked about how your book is a series of term papers. Um, and, you know, at, at uh, college, I know like in, for example, Directed Studies, the Yale program where there's a lot of paper writing, there's a great deal of emphasis on the opening of, of the various books that one might read and so forth. Um, and I noticed that in some of your books, you lead off either the book or chapters with quotes from other authors. Um, and so one might look at that as, as doing the work. Um, for the author in some way in the opening. Um, but did you have sort of models of, in the form of other authors? Uh, so, for example, myself, you know, I, I come back to Robert Caro from time to time, and when I look at his great book, uh, The Power Broker, he, his opening really, he lets another author do it for him. He quotes Sophocles, one must wait until the evening to see how splendid the day has been. 
and then he goes on from there. Um, so did you have models in terms of, of how you think about openings or were you inspired by other authors? Of course. Um, and let's go back to our earlier um, episode where I, I talked about um, how if you want to be a book author, I think that begins with being a book reader, um, maybe even being a book listener, um, having your parents read aloud to you, you know, when you're four years old or something from if they're great parents, I'm not a great, I wasn't a great parent. I didn't do this. Um, you know, but, but a lot of my friends uh, have vivid memories of their parents reading great works of literature to them um, every night at bedtime. Okay. And, and I actually didn't do that. My parents didn't do that for me, truthfully. Um, but I read stuff myself. Um, what I did for my kids um, actually was uh, books on tape in the car. And I picked books that I wanted them to, to hear. Um, two of my favorites actually were Jane Austen books, just because she had a great command of the language. Um, and I want them to hear the English language well-spoken and Harry Potter books, because they liked Harry Potter. And um, these were read by a great actor who did all the voices very, very well. And so you're, you're getting the best of the book um, and the movie, you're getting the entire um, text the way you would from the book, but you're getting it actually um, read theatrically the way you, you would see actors actually bring these characters to life on the screen. So, so I thought actually, um, I think it was 27 um, uh, audio tapes just for one of the books or something. Um, uh, 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 but we would read, we would listen to the books in the car. Okay. So, um, and I told you um, in a previous episode, of course, uh, yes. Let's go back to Akil at in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. That's how he becomes a book writer. He doesn't know he's going to be a book writer then, but when he, I, he looks back, when I look back in retrospect, that's when it began with my reading. So let me tell you some of the, my, my my favorite openings and how they influenced actually my thought about how I was going to open my books. You need to have models, role models, it's going to, you know, for, for, um, and uh, who, which books have the right literary agent, which books were um, edited by um, Robert Loomis or by, by, by this, um, uh, were published by this publishing house. So, so, um, and I also told you that Bob Loomis did fiction as well as nonfiction. And at one point told me that my book was dragging in the middle and that was an act three problem. That's actually how he, he described it. And if, especially if I'm trying to write narrative, Oh, I um, history writers who write narrative should pay attention to novelists by other kinds of storytellers. Okay. So let me pick two or three uh, um, and just tell you some of my favorite openings and, and why. Um, so I'm writing a trilogy. Uh, this one is the words that made us America's constitutional conversation, 1760, 1840. Volume two is the word will be the words that made us equal. America's constitutional conversation, 1840, 1920. Final one, the words that made us modern. America's constitutional conversation, um, 1920 to 2000. So of course I'm going to think about the Lord of the Rings as this, you know, big epic trilogy. And it had a prequel called the Hobbit. And I had a prequel called America's constitutional biography, um, um, which in turn had a prequel, um, uh, the, the, the bill of rights book. That's the whole, you know, uh, um, uh, Parthenon Acropolis stuff. Here's how the Lord of the Rings begins, the Fellowship of the Ring, if we take as the beginning um, uh, book one, chapter one. Now, there's stuff even before that, and we haven't talked about prefaces and, 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 and forewords and prologues uh, 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 quite enough. But, but here's how um, uh, the opening chapter, a long-expected party of the Lord of the Rings begins. 
when Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. That's the first sentence, and it's spectacular because he's getting this weird guy with a weird name, Bilbo Baggins, already. We're already in this fantasy world. You know, who, who knows a real person whose name is Bilbo, you know, or Bilbo Baggins? Um, and Hobbiton, what's that all about? He's getting hobbits in, but also 111st. What a cool thing to bring into your opening sentence, you know, 111. Um, so, so that was cool. Okay, then in the next paragraph, and you're going to see, oh, my gosh. In his first page, he's foreshadowing quite a lot, even as he's also linking back to the prequel book, The Hobbit, the way my um, Acropolis reference linked back to my Parthenon reference. Here's the second paragraph. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. That's The Hobbit, you see. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as at 50. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. Well, of course, trouble does come of it, and, and, and indeed, the ring, um, this is the Lord of the Rings, gives actually its bearer everlasting life, immortality. So that's why actually he's well-preserved and, and stretched. And, and the Hobbit didn't say any of that stuff. This is, you know, they're be- introducing this at the very, very beginning, Tolkien is, in his first two paragraphs. And people are saying, hmm, this seems a little, there's something wrong here. Um, and indeed, uh, the ring, which gives him um, eternal life, um, uh, there, there's there's some other things about the ring that you need to, to know. It, it, it actually um, it, it has um, it's associated with with evil as well as um, um, this this wonderful power. What um, did Chekhov say about a gun? Ah, that if you show a gun, you know, in act one, in the first um, act, someone better use it by act three. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So what am I doing? I actually say in my opening. Um, uh, listen, it seems all very nice right now, but very soon it's all going to unravel. Okay. I, I begin with a long, you know, maybe not long expected, but a party. I actually begin with them toasting King George in these alehouses. You see, but I say, oh, but within 15 years, it's all going to unravel. I'm foreshadowing in my first page, just like my, was I aware of this when I wrote that? Not at all. I'm looking back and saying, my God, of course I must have been influenced by the Lord of the Rings because I've only read it 50 times. You and I watched together recently when you, you, you came over to, 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 to Guilford. We're, we're now doing part two of our conversation, and, and, and so the audio might be a little different for, for our audience. But, but um, we watched because I loved it. Um, um, the opening episode of Downton Abbey, which you hadn't actually seen before. And he's introducing all of his great themes, actually, brilliantly early on. 
Um, um, and I'm not going to ruin the series for you because you don't know what all those themes will be. But I promise you, if you look at the, um, Act One, Scene One, or the opening um, episode of Down Abbey, it's very impressive how all these themes are introduced at the beginning. Now, what's one of his themes? One of his themes is a total Jane Austen theme. Um, and it's introduced at the very beginning. There are um, uh, uh, sisters, and they uh, come from um, a, um, a, a very high-born family. Um, their father is um, an, a nobleman, but they're three sisters. There's no son, and actually there's a fee-tail male, and only male heirs can inherit, and that's going to be a problem for the three sisters, Lady um, Mary, Lady Edith, and Larry, Lady Sybil, because there's no son. That's I don't, I'm not going to ruin doubt now, be too much by saying it begins actually with the male heir to the throne um, dying. Um, and, and now the whole plan unravels because that male heir to the throne was going to be married to one of the sisters. And so all the sisters would live happily. Um, um, and, and the problem had been solved through a male heir. And now, spoil, it's, it's the first one minute of the show that it appears that the, it appears that the male heir has died on the Titanic. So, okay. Uh, you know, and I, of course, we, we did the taping, and then we watched the, the show. We planned the taping, we watched the show. And so I'm watching it for the first time. I'm watching it with, you know, with this in mind. Okay, what's the opening? What am I going to see? And actually, from my point of view, as I watched it, the first thing that I saw, and this is certainly not spoiling because I haven't seen the rest of them, so I can't spoil it for anyone, is the telegraph. Someone's tapping on the telegraph. Technology. Next yes. thing that you see is a railroad you know, a, a rail cart, you know, a churning away down the tracks. Um, so right away, this theme of technology racing to intrude on the world, uh, on, a, on a, you know, quiet world, uh, is very evident. And I, I expect that now to be a theme. Uh, maybe it's an underlying theme. Maybe it's not an overt theme. Oh, no, it, but, it, it, it is a big theme. This is a lost world that is um, fading away. Um, uh, um, just as actually the Shire will never actually um, be quite the same by the end of the um, Lord of the Rings, at least for the main protagonists. They're also showing you how the big events of the outside world are intruding um, uh, upon this uh, sleepy little Shire. Um, it's actually, it, it, it takes place, uh, Down Abbey does, in Yorkshire, which is Yorkshire, okay, um, the Shire of, of, of York. Um, and, and, and Shire Reeves are sheriffs or sheriffs, um, as in Lord of the, the, the Rings, but, but it's taking place in the, this idyllic um, uh, milieu. In fact, um, the, 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 the opening uh, scene um, for um, Masterpiece Theater is often just the, the beautiful um, English country landscape, very much like the opening scene in the movie of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so um, it's very much about actually uh, a, a world that is dying in part because of modernity and telegraph is one, trains them, but another is big events in the outside world like the sinking of that Titanic. World War I is going to be a very big deal and women's suffrage is going to be a very big deal um, and the Irish um, 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 uh, troubles are going to be um, um, really important and oh, the Spanish flu um, like um, it's going to be, a, and this was before COVID, that they're actually chronicling the impact of the Spanish flu, just like they're saying, ah, the Titanic is taking place 
you know, way, way away from, from this, and yet it's having a huge effect. And I'm going to come in just a second because I promise you, Julian Fellows, who, by the way, is a good friend apparently of, of Sir Philip Bobbitt's, um, is so completely influenced by Jane Austen. There are multiple, multiple references to Austen, you know, um, and, and often actually, you know, the, the, the Dowager Countess says, you know, you read too many novels or you're getting your ideas from, from novels. And she actually mentions Miss um, um, Bennett um, in, um, from Pride and Prejudice in, in, in one of the other episodes. So I'm actually going to, in just a second, connect you from, to the, from the first scene of Down Abbey, which is what's going to happen to the girls, the sisters, because now there's no male heir, that's the theme of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. That's exactly the theme of, of those great Jane Austen novels, in fact. And Fellows knows that. He's part of a literary tradition, you see. So obviously there are allusions to Shakespeare. If you're an English lit person, you're going to make allusions to Dickens and Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And, and so, too, I'm going to be alluding to, as I already did in a previous episode, Joseph's story or the Federalist Papers, they're part of actually the constitutional canon in the same way that Shakespeare, Austin, and Dickens are part of the English lit canon. I think it's so interesting, you know, to see how an author like yourself, who, after all, you know, start off as a very serious, not that you're not any longer, but, you know, a serious legal writer in the, you know, more, you know, sort of bland tradition, should we say, of the, of the law journal. And now, you know, these are, as you say, trade books, it's certainly not fiction, but, you know, as you, as you make, continue to make this crossover, um, you bring in motifs, as you're saying, that you've become familiar with. Well, you may, some of them may even be unconscious. You know, you just mentioned, well, you know, at the beginning of your book, it's a big party, right? Well, what, what, what work of art and literature starts with a big party, the Godfather? Absolutely. And, you know, certainly that's, you know, near and dear to your heart as well. Um, but it doesn't the Iliad actually, now I know it does, it's the start, but actually when you initially flash, flashback, um, isn't the apple of discord, you know, um, ro- thrown into actually um, some actually celebra- celebration, um, um, uh, you know, to, to the fairest of them all? Yeah, the judgment of Paris is what you're, yes. What, yeah. Yes. yes, because they're visiting for, I believe, a wedding. I um, thought so. Yeah. I thought it's actually yeah. a wedding. Um, I believe so. What your audience is hearing is, you know, I remember every single thing about the Lord of the Rings and not so much about the Iliad, um, the Odyssey a little bit, bit more um, or, or, the, or the Aeneid. Now, um, so let me, since I mentioned Jane Austen, of course, you know, um, no discussion of great openings um, would be complete without um, reminding you one of the greatest lines, opening lines um, in literature. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Okay, and I promise you that idea um, appears immediately to the Dowager Countess once she realizes actually someone else is the heir to the throne and the, uh, the heir to the uh, estate, and he happens to be single. His name is Matthew Crawley, and and he must be in want of a wife, and oh, she's got a choice for him, her granddaughter. Okay, um, which would restore the estate and 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 harmony. What's another thing you see um, about um, the Lord of the Rings? Um, it begins with a world that happy and harmonious stasis this is classic um and then something disrupts that and then you have to you know that the book is all about returning to harmony okay um and we're, we're not going to talk about endings um in this episode and that's going to be the next episode endings but 
Um, um, and I'll tell you how the Lord of the Rings, for example, um, um, ends or something. And, but, but it's harmony restored. So there's harmony and there's this long expected party and everyone is happy. Oh, but they're already foreshadowing something, you know, there's something that maybe isn't quite right. And, and very soon we'll find out what it is it's called the shadow of the past. This harmonious world has been completely shattered by in, in, in Downton Abbey, the, um, the Titanic, you know, which is a huge disaster for everyone, but a particular disaster you see for uh, our, our protagonists. So I begin with harmony and, and it seems, oh, what could be better? It's a party and it's all about a new king and, you know, a young king. Uh, um, uh, America is actually doing, uh, the, um, the, Brit, the British Empire is doing well. We're defeating the Canadians. We're beating the Canadians. You know, all is right with the world. Uh, but it's going to quickly unravel, interestingly enough. That's actually a classic. Now, here's what I just told you, and it's a problem, big problem. Novels, there's a classic storytelling form. And history, a certain kind of history is storytelling. But maybe actually the, um, history is also truth. And maybe the ultimate truths don't actually have this narrative harmony to them. And maybe authors you know, who, who are trying to write stories of a certain sort, cram um, uh, unruly and inconvenient and complex um, historical truths into um, um, a more um, recognizable narrative form because the book starts to write the author rather than the author writing the book. And, and maybe then the author um, is um, going to pick something that's unrepresentative but makes for a good story, for example, or come up with a cutesy ending and it, it, it just ties up everything you know, with a bow. It, it's, it's very nice, but it's fake. It's, it's, it's just too much of a, a novel and a story and not how actually complex history unfolds. Oh, I just told you about a big thing that I worry about a lot. Um, how much um, am I letting storytelling conventions um, uh, actually um, uh, uh, not just um, influence, but they maybe distort my um, um, narrative. And That's there a real be, issue. There also, it also is not necessarily limited to storytelling conventions. You also may have you know, legal theories or theories of the founding and so forth, theories of America, um, patriotic or, or, or negative or whatever. And these preconceived notions may all, you know, also color how you interpret the historical research that you do. And I think it's quite analogous to, let's say, medical research, where people sometimes, you know, there's, it's, it's scandalous, but you see, you know, data either ignored or bent or misinterpreted, you know, to fit a, a, a theory or, you know. Yeah, a theory. So that's, that's always the problem. Here's what I would say in my own defense. I've tried to, one, one I've tried to be aware of these things, self-aware um, of, of this risk. Two, in this, my two big books, biggest books, I chose my opening scene for analytic purposes, even though it also um, happened to be good for storytelling purposes. My book on the Constitution, America's Constitution Biography, begins with what I say in the beginning, because I'm beginning with the beginning of the text. It's a textual project, and the beginning of the text actually describes the ordainment process. We, the people, do ordain the Constitution, and I'm getting in my big protagonist, which isn't this person or that one, but the American people actually doing something epic and, I believe, world-changing. I believe that the ratification of the Constitution, the ordainment, was the Big Bang that changed the world, the hinge of human history. Before that, 
Um, most of the world was actually thuggish. Today, half the world, kings, emperors are, sultans, mogulors, tribal chieftains. Today, half the world is democratic. And I think the thing that changed more than anything else was putting the constitution to a vote up and down a continent. And, and that's why my story begins in September with the ratification process, the ordainment process described by the preamble and a news and newspapers publishing the thing, printing it. So, so it all came together, but analytically that actually is where the story should begin. Cause that's, th- that's the beginning of, 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 of a modern democracy, um, uh, putting the thing to a vote, not talking about it um, backstage um, in Philadelphia, which in the new book, I explain in a chapter called America um, that what's so, because my new book starts in 1760, way before September 1787, but my narrative at Philadelphia is actually not telling you week by week, speech by speech, blow by blow what's happening, because that was secret at the time, but actually saying, here's the big thing you need to understand. Even though it was secret, even though it was a small clump of people behind closed doors, everyone behind closed doors knew from day one of the conclave that they were going to have to put it to a vote at the end. And so they are anticipating what voters are likely to say about this proposal or that one as they're drafting it. They're also bringing into the room all sorts of ideas that they that have been generated by the American people state by state, state constitution by state constitution from 1776 on. So America is in the room actually um, with uh, state constitutional ideas and with the anticipated ratification. Um, um, and so the real story isn't that, that the people, that, that small clump of, of elites, uh, elites in, in Philadelphia, but the state constitutional backdrop and the anticipated ratification to follow. So that's um, uh, I, why it was right for me to start America's Constitution and Biography with the preamble textually and the ratification processes that it textually describes, the performative sentence, we, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution. That was analytically, and not just from a storytelling point of view, the right place to start, and newspapers are publishing the thing. This one analytically i thought is the right place to start because i'm i want to show you how at a certain point the americans are just proud to be brits and everything is hunky dory and since they're eventually going to revolt against king george it's personal george the third not george the second not george the first you know not william the conqueror or you know or or the stuart kings they're going to revolt against george the third and so i'm actually beginning at the first moment that they know that George III is George III, because before that, he was just, uh, he, he wasn't actually um, uh, um, um, a George III. He didn't have a number yet. Um, he, he was just the heir apparent, um, uh, uh, the Prince of Wales, presumably. Um, but, but I begin literally the moment that news, the news, arrives in the new world, um, that they have a new king that they're eventually going to cast off. So analytically, I actually thought it makes sense to start just here. And then I'm going to tell, show you, using storytelling techniques, how you can, in the same way that Tolkien does, I can foreshadow, oh, um, but 
things are going to unravel pretty quickly. And they're toasting him now, but they won't. And then all the newspapers are celebrating him, but these newspapers are going to be attacking each other very, very soon. Um, and, 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 and pretty soon um, it won't just be words flying back and forth, but bullets flying back and forth. And, and um, uh, the, the ship horse here is dropping anchor in Boston Harbor. Oh, but pretty soon there are going to be other people dropping other things, and that won't end well. Um, it's going to end in a lot of violence. So, so that's but that's all foreshadowing. Um, so, but there's this tension between storytelling um, and actually um, presenting the, the, the relevant data. Um, um, now, I'm going to tell you one or two more of my favorite openings, um, and then. Um, uh, connect to pre-openings because um, uh, um, and what what happens even before chapter one. So uh, quickly um, on um, um, openings. So of course in high school, you know I'm you know a, a smart alecky kid. So I'm going to fall in love with something like the Catcher in the Rye, you know, which is written by, you know, a high school kid who's complaining about how everything is fake and phony and all the rest. Uh, but how does that begin? Catcher in the Rye actually begins um, with a literary illusion. Here's the opening line. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me, and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it, if you want to know the truth. Okay? And he's perfectly captured the voice, you know, of a teenager, but he's also connecting himself to a literary tradition, you know, with David Copperfield, you see. And chapter one of David Copperfield is I Am Born. It's written in the first person, um, um, and, and Charles Dickens' initials are CD and David Copperfield's are DC. So, but, but of course, and it's not weird because, of course, a prep school kid would be introduced to David Copperfield. Okay. So he's obviously been forced by his teachers to read David Copperfield and he thinks it's all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But you see, he's making it's part of a, a certain literary tradition, you see. And, and just as so in my books, you know, I'm going to actually try to connect again to other things that are in my tradition, like the Federalist Papers, um, a book about the Constitution, kind of working through in textual order or stories, commentaries or what have you. OK, so, yeah, I've, um, th th these are some of the famous first lines in, in, in literature. Um, Catcher in the Rye, Sense and Sensibility. I could have talked about Pride and Prejudice. From um, the, the very beginning, again, it's all about how the girls aren't going to, the, the sisters aren't going to inherit, um, which is how Downton Abbey, of course, um, begins. Now, what about Shakespeare? Since it's, okay, we've just ticked the boxes, you know, Dickens and, uh, and, and Austin. So, you know, Shakespeare's, you know, the biggest one of all. I just want to mention three different, I mean, I could have picked an infinite number. And, and, and you reminded me, Lear begins again with, you know, the, the sisters and who's going to inherit and all the rest, the, the succession crisis. But here are three. Here's Hamlet. Two words. Who's there? Um, which is brilliant because, um, first of all, like two, not just two words, two syllables, two monosyllabic words. Who's there? And one of the bigger themes is, you know, is this all in Hamlet's head? Is there really a ghost? Who is that, you know, that, that ghost? You know, um, what's real? What's not? Um, um, and, and Shakespeare gets you right into the action, uh, first line. 
Now let me contrast that. And that's just uh, ordinary prose with the first scene of um, Macbeth. The first scene of Macbeth is great, but it's, it's in rhyme. But the rhyme makes sense because it's actually witches. You know, we, we, we met on Halloween, you know, weekend. Um, um, uh, uh, um, and, and, the, and it's an incantation. So, of course, the incantation would be in rhyme. And, and you realize something's not quite right. There's, there's evil everywhere. And um, so, so, but, that, but, but, so, but Shakespeare himself is a poet, but he's putting his poetry into a play where people are in the main talking and not talking um, in, in verse. But it makes total sense for this to be in verse um, because um, the witches are doing an incantation. Uh, and here's, of course, the famous um, uh, opening of Macbeth. When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that will be ere the set of the su- set of sun. Where's the place upon the heath there to meet Macbeth? I, I, uh, and it goes on, okay. Uh, um, 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 fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. So from the beginning, you're thinking, ooh, this, there's something really eerie going on here, okay. But it's, um, it's poetry that actually makes sense. Just like when you see the movie Cabaret, you know, which is a musical, of course it makes sense that it's a musical because it's actually about actually Cabaret where people are actually doing music, of course. So, so um, uh, okay. Now let me contrast that finally with Romeo and Juliet, where again we begin in verse, but we begin outside the story with the, the, the poet and the theater troupe breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, speaking directly to the audience, players to the audience uh, before the play begins, as it were. And I'm going to talk about, and that's what a certain preface or introduction, partly what happens is actually the author sometimes converses directly with the audience about what the book will be before the book proper begins in chapter one. Tolkien does this in The Lord of the Rings, for example. There's something before where he as an author tells you some things before you get into the story. Um, that's not how Hamlet begins. It's just who's there. That's not how Sense and Sensibility you know, begins, which is just in the story, or Pride and Prejudice, the, the story, or um, uh, um, uh, Catcher in the Rye, or, or David Copperfield. They just begin in the story, um, but that's not how Romeo and Juliet begins. Romeo and Juliet begins with one paragraph. It's actually called... Um, a prologue, and it's in it's in rhyme. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scenes. The, the actors from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Okay, so scene unclean, dignity mutiny, and it, and it, it just goes on and on. Um, of course, that's the the prologue. It's only about you know. 10 lines or something, um, and it has the very famous phrase, star-crossed lovers. A pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. So from the very beginning, he's, they, you know, the, the, the troop is telling you what's going to happen. Two star-crossed lovers are going to take their life. You know, they ruined the ending, you know. And, 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 you know they talk, but that's what a preface sometimes does. It tells you what the book is going to be about. Um, and it's taking you outside of the narrative, and you signal that as an author by calling it a preface or a postscript where you step outside your story and comment on the story itself. 
Yeah, there's, there, you know, you could use so many examples. I mean, Faust, for example, is a famously complex opening where he has a prologue, you know, in the theater saying that, okay, this is all going to be a play. And so you're sort of outside, but is it? And then he has another prologue in heaven where a whole entire analogy is made to the book of Job. And then they finally start with a monologue uh, by Faust was talking about his own life so you know he's so that you can you can be immensely complex or you can be immensely simple who's uh, there who's there or, or the aeneid i sing of arms and the man so in that first sentence already he said he's already told you that arms the iliad and the man the odyssey and that's his book you know except it's reversed the first half is the man the second half is the arms but uh, in in just that one sentence um, so um, a spectacular play, which is later made into a movie, basically um, two m- m- characters, um, and, and in fact you can stage it with only two, um, uh, is Sleuth. Um, the movie is Laurence Olivier, Sir Laurence Olivier and, and Michael Caine. It begins, who's there? And see, that's an illusion, obviously. Of course, you know, there's no one, you know, who understands that that's not an illusion to Hamlet if you're a Brit, okay? Um, and I haven't done endings yet. In my ending, that's going to be the next episode, I kill all my protagonists, just like the, you know, the last scene of Hamlet where, you know, you got bodies strewn everywhere, okay? Um, um, and so, Lear, by the way. Um, uh, yes, very painful at the end. Very painful um, when he brings Cordelia, when he carries Cordelia's dead body, and the, the audience gasps. Actually, um, so um, uh, but like Faust, okay, and and here and we have to bring this podcast to an end. <laughs> but um, there was something. Uh, so Faust, so, which I, I I'm not an expert on Faust, but you're saying actually he's sort of working from the you know the outer frame sort of into the canvas, sort of okay. Right. Um, so um, there's something before my chapter one, and it's a little thing that I call a preface where I actually tell you what the book will be about. Um, and I'm stepping outside my narrative and I use first person. I say I. I don't think I say, you know, I anywhere in the book. I say we, you know, because uh, uh, but I, I don't think I ever use first person singular um, in the book proper. I do it in the preface. And in the postscript, when you said Faust comes on as a monologue or something, where I'm actually telling the reader what this book will be about. And I wanted that to begin, you know, pretty well. And I, I hope I did. But even before that, actually, there's um, the dedication page. Um, is that part of the book? Well, for me, it was. Um, and, and there are all sorts of different kinds of dedications. Um, this was a more public dedication. Um, so what, what, what's the dedication page doing there? And then, and then finally, I'm going to get to the, um, um, the, 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 the cover of the book itself. Again, working, you know, what's, what's before even chapter one. So the dedication page of, of, of my book is, let's call it a more public dedication. It says, this book, so it's now self-referential, you know, is dedicated. Sometimes it doesn't say that. It just says, you know, to um, Andy. Ah, okay. I look forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> you know, um, this book is dedicated to Lin-Manuel Miranda, Vanessa Nadal, Ron Chernow, and Kaiser Khan. And, of course, to Neil Kumar Katyal, who introduced me to each of you. 
Thank you all jointly and severally for helping me and so many others see the true meaning of America. So what's that all about? Okay, let me, let me talk about a private dedication. A private dedication is to Vanitha um, with love or, or for everything or something like that. Vanitha's my wife. Okay. Now, um, what am I telling you, the book author and the book reader? Well, I'm telling you something actually about the dedicatee, Vanitha. Okay, I'm dedicating something to her. Um, about myself, okay, and I'm, dedic- I'm the one who's doing the dedication with love or something, but from a certain point of view, um, that maybe has almost nothing to do with the book itself. Um, maybe I dedicate each and every book to her, and the books are completely different and have nothing to do with each other. So, um, and, and maybe, actually, you're just a voyeur here um, um, uh, uh, looking in on what's really just a private thank you to, to, to someone who means a lot to me. Okay, so maybe that's all. It's important. Maybe it's important to me, but is it important for you to know that about me? And maybe, or maybe it has like nothing to do with the book. Truth be told. Um, now, um, well, it's a my, fourth wall of sorts. You know, right? You're, you know, you're you're stepping outside. You know, the, yes, you're right. But maybe I'm not saying anything about the play, about the scene. Okay, this is a different one. I actually, I'm telling you a little bit about what this book is about when I'm saying this is actually about um, uh, um, I I thank them for helping me and so many others, not just me, but in fact, the readers see the true meaning of America. Oh, this is a book about the true meaning of America. You wouldn't know that if I just said, you know, to to Vanita with love or something. So I'm telling you something. And um, so, um, uh, and, and why did I pick those people, I don't really tell you. I say a little bit in the afterward. We haven't talked about endings yet. That's going to be our next chat, um, um, episode where we talk about stuff at the end of the book, like the acknowledgments and the uh, end notes um, and the index and the back cover of a book, for example, the, the back of the book. But on the um, but here, why did I pick these folks? Well, I don't quite ever tell you, um, and it's not because I know all of them really well, because I don't. Um, um, uh, but one thing that I am actually signaling is, um, that this is, I say something about the true meaning of America. So why these people? Because actually they're a diverse group. Um, 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 uh, uh, let's take ethnic and let's take, um, religion. Ron Chernow is Jewish. Kaiser Khan is Muslim. Neil Katyal is Hindu. Um, Lynn is born Catholic. I don't know, you know, uh, uh, how, how he described himself today. I've never asked his spouse, Vanessa. I know her better than I know um, him. Um, but I'm trying to say, this is America. You know, it's white people like Ron Chernow and, 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 um, and, and brown people um, like, uh, like um, uh, Kaiser Khan or Neil Katyal or Lynn Miranda. Vanessa is partly European and, and, and partly um, uh, partly Northern European and partly sort of Hispanic. Um, so um, this is America. I'm saying religiously diverse, ethnically diverse. All five of these are actually generally seen as left of center. Um, um, where some of the people that I'm asking to blurb my book on the back are, and we'll talk about that later, right of center. Rick Brookheiser is a very prominent writer for the National um, uh, review. Steve Calabresi is a co-founder and co-chairman of the Federal Society. So I'm actually trying to signal in this book, 
oh, this is a book for conservatives. Oh, this is a book for liberals. Um, this is a book about what I claim to be the true meaning of America. It's a more public dedication page. Um, but I'm already now, I'm, I'm using that um, to tell you, the reader, something about the book and not just about you know, me personally, I love my wife or, you know, my, about my wife, that she's a very lovable person. Um, it's a more public dedication page. Working our way, you know, to, uh, out, and here's the final uh, thing for today, the, the cover, the front cover of the book. I changed the title of my book. My, my book, America's Constitution, a biography, was originally America's Constitution, a guided tour. Um, but we thought that was a little bit too kind of hokey, um, uh, corny, um, a down market, um, tinny. Um, so we came up with something a little bit loftier, uh, America's Constitution, a biography, um, which also we thought for um, a marketing purposes might work because I'm trying to reach people who l- might like biographies, might read Ron Chernow's books or um, uh, David McCullough's or Robert K. Rose or, or what have you. So, um, and it's a little interesting and edgy because you could say Lyndon Johnson a biography or John Adams a biography or Alexander Hamilton a biography. What does it mean to have a biography of the Constitution? So we thought it had a little bit of edge. There was a book called God, a biography. Um, so we thought it's kind of interesting. Maybe it'll, it'll attract some people. It's signaling that this is a big, serious nonfiction biography-like book. And if you like Ron Chernow or David McCullough or Ron, uh, Robert Cameron, maybe you might like this one. But and I changed it. I think it's a much better choice for other reasons. You know, a guided tour, you can start anywhere and go in any direction. Whereas the biography, I mean, you can do the same, but normally there's a certain chronological approach to it. Now, this is not entirely chronological, but it's struck, it has a certain structure. You're not going to start with Article 2 and then go to Article 1, you know, and that sort of thing. So it, so it has structure in the way a biography has structure and not in the way a guided tour has structure. And especially it is chronological in the last third because you go from the founding to the Bill of Rights, the founding in 1787-89, Bill of Rights in 1790-91, um, um, the Reconstruction Amendments in the 1860s, the, uh, the Progressive Amendments in the 19-teens, the 1960s Amendments, so it does have that chronological structure. So I changed that in consultation with um the um, publisher, um, our uh, would-be book authors should know that's one of the things that happens a lot is actually um, your title may very well change. And, and they, they're, they're, they think a lot about, you know, whether it's the right title for marketing purposes and, and, and other things. So um, this book was originally, was originally going to be 12 score, America's Constitutional Conversation, um, 1760 uh, to 2000. But when I started writing, I thought, oh, I have way too much material to, to do. So then um, it it became um, uh, um, six score. It was going to be actually going to be two books. But then it became clear, no, there are going to be three. It's just only 80 years. But it was going to be America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Um, and, and it was going to be um, alluding to America's Constitutional Biography. That was pretty successful book commercially, so let's do it again. And, oh, only three words, America's Constitutional Conversation. What could be better than that? Three words. Um, and the, 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 the subtitle, oh, I'm sorry, it was just going to be America's Constitutional uh, uh, Conversation, and and then the subtitle was going to be the words that made us 1760 and 1840 or something like that. Um, 
But then, and I just, and I realized something about a book. Um, my editor thought, my publisher thought, a lot of my friends thought when they pulled them, it would be better to call it The Words That Made Us, um, which is a little bit of a pun, The Words That Made like the U.S., us. Um, I thought, that's more words. That's five words. And America's Constitutional Conversation, that's three words. So, you know, three was better than five. No. America's Constitutional Conversation, it, it's only three words, but it's, it's um, and fewer words, but it's more letters. It's more syllables. On the front of a book, it's actually going to be easier to say the words that made us in, in big letters. You're going to have to have small letters if you say America's Constitutional Conversation. And here's, you know, we haven't got to the back yet, but we're, we made it all the way to the spine now. On the spine of the book, what's really interesting, because it's a big, fat book, and we'll talk about how the, why they chose to use thick paper um, um, in, in the next episode as, as well. Actually, the words appear horizontally, uh, the, the, the title words. The words that made us appear horizontally and not vertically, um, and, um, and everything is horizontal. I want you, the reader, to go on, just look at the books in your bookshelf. How many of them have the words oriented horizontally? And my guess is... Very, very few. You need um, a book uh, with um, uh, short words in the title and a pretty uh, fat spine, actually, uh, to make that work well. Um, so like, had I ever thought about that before? No. And I, this is like my you know, sixth, seventh book or something, and I had never realized, no, it's not the words, it's the syllables, it's the number of letters. That's what you want, actually. Well, but th- and, and also to our readers, think about why that matters. You go to the bookstore. And you look at the books, you know, sitting on the shelf, the ones where the where the words are horizontal, you can read the title without having to turn your head ninety degrees or perform a you know sort of inside your brain a you know a rotation of the words in order to to read them. So, and uh, if you're an American, you turn your head to the right. Um, if you're a French person, you actually have to turn your head to the left because Americans actually um, it goes from the top of the book down but in french books it often goes from the bottom of the book up interesting like left side right side these are conventions you're so unaware of them you know just but there there are actually these very interesting conventions now um we've come to the end of this episode we've you know but but we haven't talked about ends in general um and so that's what i want to talk about ideally you know in our next episode or or, or soon thereafter um how the the, the book jacket ends so i haven't talked about the blurbs quite um on the back and how you pick your blurbers and what about the index and what about the um, um end notes and what about the acknowledgments what they call in the business the back matter of the book so um all that is um uh uh, uh, uh for the next episode you know when and of course when we say the next episode that's that's uh, we're we're committing ourselves to that the same way we're committing to doing all the justices in one episode, you know, because you know things happen and we're, we're... And, and the same way I was going to do eighteen uh, seventeen sixty to to two thousand in right. one book. Yes. Yeah. So and we're aware that uh, audience that things happen in the world in the world of the law, the world of the Supreme Court, and so forth. And uh, you know, for example, this week the Texas abortion case being actually today uh, uh, being argued. Um, and so thing, things happen that we may... And an important to... gun case also. So we'll just have to see, yes, what the, what the world uh, has in store. But eventually we'll get to the end of, the, of, of, of this book and the end of books. And then 
Oh, I haven't told you all about uh, book tour stuff and book reviews and, and all that stuff. Oh, joy. Post-publication book but, reviews. Um, the other thing is, if this were a class, and of course, yeah, there is a certain notion of, of instruction here that you know, you're, you're learning audience about um, what it is to write a book, what it is to be an author, and, and so forth. Uh, and also, hopefully, this will inform your reading. You'll may look at books, you know, differently, even if you're not going to write one. But if it were a class, it's pretty obvious what the homework assignment would be. You know, go write an opening yourself. You know, write write a first paragraph yourself. You know, for a, for your book, uh, or something like that. And, and then you, rewrite it, and rewrite it, and rewrite it. Correct. <laughs> but uh, you know, again, we're we're although we haven't done it yet, we are planning to. You have episode or episodes where we review your comments and your questions, and if if you uh, care to submit those to uh, the website where there's a place to do that, you know, feel free. And again, we welcome your reviews, both the reviews on Amazon, Goodreads, and similar sites of uh, the words that made us. For those of you that have read it, um, and of course, we invite you to read it, and also of the podcast. Please, um, please read it. Read it. <laughs> You can see that this gentleman cares about his book. Um, so anyway, uh, so thank you very much. And uh, next week, something will happen. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.